Hello, listeners. Today I'm joined by Dr. Brian Rosebury from the University of Central Lancashire. And Brian is a senior lecturer in politics at the School of Humanities and has written a few interesting pieces on Tolkien over the years, including um, a couple of books. Although I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Brian, but the um, Tolkien, a cultural phenomenon is sort of an update of an earlier book. Is that right? Sure. That's right. Yeah. 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 And um, a few other pieces in in Tolkien studies and uh, journals like that. So the piece that we're basing this conversation on today is um, is the piece from Tolkien studies, I think, two thousand and eight, uh, "Revenge and Moral Judgment" uh, in Tolkien. So clear title there. <laughs> so this paper discusses a few few different aspects of, of Tolkien's work, but in particular today, I was interested in talking to Brian about the Turin story and the implications of the Turin story for moral judgment, as the title suggests, but also the issue of, I suppose, tragedy as well in Tolkien and obviously the children of Hurin or the Turin story being perhaps the major tragedy of Tolkien's work, although there are others. You know, it's a great place from which to to begin or to, to launch that conversation. So that's sort of the... I guess the outline for the, the conversation I was hoping to have. And I must say for listeners, I'm not recording on my usual uh, microphone today because I'm in the middle of moving house or houses to, to a new house. So I don't um, have my usual uh, microphone with me. So the audio might be a little bit, um, well, it might be bad on my end. So I apologize about that if, if it, if it turns out to be the case, but that's okay. Just to begin though, I, th- I thought given that we've sort of mentioned your publications just to, to sort of broaden out in a, in a, in a sense, for, for a moment. Where does your interest, I suppose, in Tolkien lie in particular? Was it sort of the, I suppose, the moral issues that are raised by the, the various books? Or, of course, in your book, Tolkien, A Cultural Phenomenon, you discuss um, you know, many aspects of, of, of Tolkien's work. So I'd be curious to, to know what sort of drew you to Tolkien in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I started as a, well, as a, a teenager reading Lord of the Rings as uh, countless other people did uh, and being kind of fired up by that. And my my main work on Tolkien really comes from the angle of a fairly conventional literary critic who's bringing a sort of uh, essentially, I suppose, aesthetic kind of um, uh, response to to the text and trying to explain why it works and when it doesn't quite work and, and so on, doing that kind of literary judgment. Um, in my, my own career, I've actually moved away from literary criticism to philosophy and even to some extent um, um, politics. Um, I'm teaching political philosophy now. So more recently, um, I've become particularly interested in Tolkien as um, someone who has some kind of claim to have a, a, a structure of ideas within his work. Um, so that, that kind of focus has, has changed a little bit. Um, most of what I've written is in the literary critical yes. kind of genre. Yeah. Um, but that uh, article on revenge that you that you picked out that that is actually fairly closely related to some of my work in um, legal and moral uh, philosophy, and I was interested to see how how subtle is Tolkien's approach to th- that kind of very morally charged um, concept of uh, revenge. Yeah. So 
um, I, I think I now tend to um, approach Tolkien and literature in general from a kind of, kind of very from a, the sort of dizzy height of philosophical concepts, which is an un-Tolkienian thing to do. I think Tolkien himself always um, tended to start from the particular and to kind of build out from particular insights, particular, particularly in language and so forth, and, and kind of construct um, uh, fictions uh, from, from, from that basis. Um, but I, what I'm trying to do now, I think, in thinking about Tolkien is to um, look at what his overall aims were in producing his um, literary work and trying to work out whether there is some kind of um, common kind of structure of ideas within the whole kind of corpus of his work, which is something, again, that he, he wouldn't, he, he tends to disclaim um, having that kind of intention. Um, he famously says in the preface to Lord of the Rings that his, his aim is merely, you know, that of a storyteller to amuse and delight and excite and move people. Um, and I think that is the kind of the first of his aims. Um, but I think he's got two other aims as well that we can bring into more of a kind of um, philosophical overview. One thing that's pretty obvious, I think, is that he wants to do that thing of amusing and exciting and moving, but in a way that is always consistent or within the constraints of his religion, his kind of monotheistic and specifically Catholic um, religion. And yet to do that without incorporating explicit reference to Christianity within the within the fiction. So that's an interesting kind of um, approach. Um, and then the third aim is to use, you know, to, to um, which is perhaps most relevant to children of Hurin, to try to do justice to the, the reality of human experience as he perceives it, um, and as he sees it expressed in the literature he admires, which is mainly, um, you know, Old English and, and Middle English yes. uh, yeah. literature. So with all that in mind, I'm, I'm kind of trying to think, and I try to bring this out in the article on revenge, Try to see if there's, you know, what kind of thinking about ideas, thinking about kind of moral principles and so forth is going on in his writing and see if we can tease out some kind of overall view. Um, so that, that's, you know, that, that's where I'm coming from um, in, in that article. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and in the in that article, you get to Turin at the end, but you do discuss several other case studies, I suppose, <laughs> if, if you want to call yeah. it that. So I suppose one question there before we get to Turin is, is there a sort of unified approach that we see Tolkien taking to questions of well, revenge and moral judgment, <laughs> as it were, or does it sort yeah. of differ between the works that he's, he's writing, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, um, aspects of the Silmarillion? That, yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I would be surprised if one couldn't find some differences, but I think there is a kind of unifying vision there, which is, um, I think the best way to express it is that there, there is a kind of, that there are two levels really in Tolkien. There's a kind of religious level at which um, a good consists in conforming your actions to what Eru you know has has devised as it were to to act freely 
um, as the right, right at the beginning if, of Silmarillion, the Ainur are free to, you know, sing out their music as they that they choose to do. But the good thing to do is to to harmonise it with the design of Eru or Iluvatar, um, and Melkor freely chooses rebellion. Um, so that's sort of the beginning of, um, of the, the, the entry of evil into into the world. Um, so th that's a kind of religious level. But then below the religious level, there's a kind of human level where you've got, you know, every character, and Turin is a particularly good example of this, is, you know, a fallible, imperfectly informed um, human being um, uh, who will make moral mistakes and will have kind of natural dispositions, including the disposition to take revenge on people who've, who've harmed you um, or harmed your loved ones, uh, that, that can lead you into foolish accent, actions and, and wrong actions that are wrong. But nevertheless, we can sympathise with those actions. So I think we, we, if we have that sense that there's of those two levels, it, it, it isn't so paradoxical that in a work like Children of Hurin, we see Tolkien giving a pretty sympathetic treatment of somebody who, you know, is, is capable of killing someone in revenge um, and uh, making reckless and foolish uh, judgments because that that's sort of part of the human condition. So an, an act of revenge may be, at the human level, understandable, but that doesn't necessarily make it well. That doesn't make it right. So I suppose my reading of Tolkien's view of revenge, if you take it, to, you're looking for a kind of overall summary, is that he sees revenge as being morally wrong. Um, but uh, he he sees well not only that some individuals may understandably yield to the temptation of revenge if they're sufficiently. Um, provoked to do so, but, but also that some cultures um, may build in a kind of revenge principle into their code. And again, that's partly something I look at in the, in the article, that the, 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 the old English and um, sort of Scandinavian cultures that, that he studied typically do have a kind of revenge code um, within them. And he's because Christianity means he can't exactly endorse that, but at the same time, any any human culture has to take account of the existence of these emotions, uh, which include you know lust and and other other kinds of and fear and other kinds of emotions, but certainly would in, include revenge uh, as well. So in the article, I try to kind of bring out how he deals in quite a nuanced way with these different occurrences of revenge in a human society. Yes, and perhaps one great example um, there is Helm Hammerhand, who you mentioned fairly early on and um, in, in concert with Bjorn as well, of course, who you say um, mm. sort of act you know, out of sort of an archaic system of, of values in a sense, I suppose, from our perspective. And as you say, Tolkien doesn't quite condemn them, but but he doesn't quite <laughs> endorse their actions either. So um, that, there there are a couple of interesting examples. Yeah, well, Bayon is an interesting case because if I remember rightly, we see that he's extracted information from the the what is it the the 
the goblin and the warg, mm. <laughs> uh, presumably by doing something very nasty to them. And then, then he you know, sort of nails them to a tree or, or whatever. And Tolkien's comment, the narrator's comment is simply, um, Bayon was a fierce enemy. And that, that seems to, as it were, avoid coming down on, avoid expressing a moral judgment. Um, uh, now in, a, in a work like The Hobbit, you feel, well, that, that's part of the process of dramatising uh, a sort of um, pagan kind of society. Um, and uh, one shouldn't ask for too much kind of moral <laughs> judgment in, in the context of a, a children's book that's, um, that, that's trying to do that. But, but he certainly doesn't seem to think that Bayon, dangerous though he is, should be regarded as one of the bad guys. He's more one of the good guys who can sometimes do things that, you know, by, certainly by a Christian level of judgment or many human levels of judgment would be indefensible. And you write in the article in reference to Bjorn and Helm, and I apologise for quoting your article at you, but I did like this this line. Um, yeah. if, if they existed in the real world, um, and this is page nine, um, someone like Tolkien might express a judgment on them as follows. Uh, they act as redoubtable, uh, as a redoubtable person might act had he not been vouchsafed uh, the special moral insight of Christianity, its message of forgiveness, mercy and self-sacrifice. Um, their actions cannot be approved, but they can be respected. So I suppose that's that. That sort of gets it. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't want to, to, to take us off on a on a on a path in into my other kind of uh, philosophical writings, but that distinction between approval and respect is something I try to develop in a in a different in a, an article in uh, moral philosophy, where I, I try to say that um, we can respect something, an action that we disapprove of if we say to ourselves that we ourselves might have committed that action um, and not frivolously, but, but you know, after carefully considering we, we might ourselves have committed that action, knowing that it was wrong, but feeling that our, oh, I don't know, in some way our lives would be spoiled if we didn't do it. So you, you imagine if, you, if some member of your family has been murdered, you, you might want to murder the killer and, at a certain level, you know that that's, that's wrong, that you ought to forgive, and that the you know the Christian thing, the saintly thing to do would be to forgive, but you just feel your life would be spoiled if you didn't perform that act of revenge, and and that that's a kind of natural disposition which you know those there was um, you know uh, Scandinavian um, cultures that I refer to, Icelandic culture, the same would kind of have to manage through their codes for revenge yeah and, and i guess that brings us to turin so i suppose one response i've seen uh, in readers of the story uh, especially i guess the Silmarillion version but really every version um is to uh well to judge turin i suppose first of all in a moral sense but also i suppose in a prudential sense there will be responses to the effect that had i been in this position i i would not have made this choice because yeah. yeah. Uh, presumably, in parentheses, the reader is, you know, is saying that they possess, you know, a higher level of judgment than Turin apparently does in the story. Um, people often react to Turin's character. Uh, you know, he's an idiot. He's a fool. He doesn't know what he's doing. These sorts of, of things. Yeah. Uh, 
So, you know, I've always been interested in that because my own reading of the story, it was always one of uh, empathy and pity for Turin as opposed to sort of judgment of him. And I've been interested in, in that, um, that dichotomy and, and yeah. wonder why that might be the case for some readers. You know, so, so I guess, I guess to, to start, um, where do you see that? And, and I know in our um, email exchange quite a few years ago, <laughs> um, I had emailed you about, about your book talking to cultural phenomenon, where you'd sort of, in the chapter on the Silmarillion, you had said um, something to the effect of the story doesn't quite work. It, you know, we're not really given given reason to empathise with Turin. And I, I sort of, I do agree with that in regards yeah. to the Silmarillion story. In the Children of Hurin, of course, we, we we have a fuller narrative. Yeah, so I'd be interested in your in your perspective there. Yeah, I think you're, you're dead right on that. I mean, I, I have changed my view, my response to Turin between those two texts, even though I suspect if I... Um, been diligent enough to read all the versions of the Turin story uh, that you know Christopher Tolkien edited over, over time will probably have um, found the material for that more sympathetic reading. But yeah, I'm, I mean, when I read the Children of Turin now, I, I oscillate between thinking, um, feeling critical towards Turin and feeling very sympathetic to him, but predominantly feel sympathetic yeah. simply because. He has been so wounded. Um, uh, he's, in some ways, he's, he's, he is a wretch um, in, in the sense that Tolkien picks up in his writing on Finn and Hengist, where he says, I think the Anglo-Saxon word, the Old English word is raka, meaning someone who is exiled, outcast, ripped away from his home, um, deprived of his inheritance and sort of cast into an, an unfriendly, sometimes hardly intelligible alien world. And uh, Turin is like that. He's, um, you know, he, he makes things worse for himself. But then that's a fairly common human experience, isn't it? To um, be thrown off your balance and, and then make things worse because of the, your struggle to recover it. So... Yeah, I think I think assume we are invited to being invited by Tolkien to be broadly sympathetic to to Turin, um, and he makes he does make quite a point of emphasising Turin's gentleness. Um, there's uh, there's his kindness to Sador, for example, the, the lame lame guy. He's kind of empathy for for Sador. There's the care he takes of his sister um, where he's described I think as not kind of following her around but kind of watching her from, from a distance to make sure she's okay um, and then when we come to um, the, the, the incest um, the talking departs a very long way from his models there and I, I just kind of checked on some of the compar comparative cases um, to see where he does move from it. If, if you look at the original story of Kula, though, in the Kalevala, which is the obvious model, in a way, for Turin, um, his, his incest with his sister is accidental, but he abducts and seduces her after propositioning several other girls. So, you know, to, the others refuse him and finally he whisks away um, his sister. Um, and that's a, a close analogue to the Turin case. It has the same suicide by leaping off a precipice in her case and leaping on his sword in, in Kulavo's case. 
And then when Tolkien did his own version of Kulavo, um, or drafted a version in his early 20s, that he gives us a, a, a version of that story, which is essentially the same, actually, but one or two subtle differences are made. The, it removes Kulavo's prior attempts to, to pick up other girls. So, um, uh, you know, occasionally he's attracted to the, this to his sister, though he doesn't know it's his sister in some kind of um, uh, distinctive way. He's not just a kind of um, lecherous tearaway. And there's quite a lot of emphasis on Culliver's mind having been distorted by the, the curse that's placed on him by Asemo, I think she's called. Um, and the style, when it comes to the style, when, when, the, when the seduction is described, as you m perhaps expect with Tolkien, it's um, somewhat sentimentalised. We hear that they have become lovers through the words, um, yet was she fair and he loving with her, so that not long did she resist him, and they abode together in the wild. You know, that, that's about as roundabout a way as you can find uh, of describing what And that's Tolkien's version of colour, though. And then when it comes to Turin, it goes to great lengths to establish um, Turin's protective attitude to women and girls um, throughout the whole story. Um, he only forms gradually an erotic relationship with Niniel. It begins as a kind of compassionate um, relationship. So, um, so he's, it, it is his some of those bad decisions that he's made already that bring him to this kind of tragic outcome. But his guilt isn't sexual. I think that's that's what Tolkien goes out of his way to make clear with Turin that he's not a sexual. Yes, uh, yes. Offence that, that Turin has committed. It's, it's, you know, it's a bit like Oedipus. You know, it, it's mm -hmm. kind of terribly bad luck <laughs> that, that um, he had with a, a family member um, in his arms. So um, there's quite a lot of work being done there by Tolkien to, to give us reason to be sympathetic to Turin. Mm, yes, and of course. Um, there's the whole incident with the the um the possible rape of course where Turin sort of intervenes and and you know li literally beheads the guy who's going to commit the the, the act so uh, yeah it makes it quite clear yeah that that's interesting i guess one question then just relating oh, i'm sorry if you can hear that uh relating back to question of the moral culpability do do we in the end in the Turin story um does Turin sort of obtain a moral culpability or, or, or do we sort of, do we see Turin? And, and perhaps this, you know, there may not be, of course, one answer to this, but, <laughs> but um, do, do we see Turin as, a, I guess, a victim of, of bad luck? I think that that's what makes it interesting, that, that you know, it's an, ex, an extreme case of something that disproves the accusation against Tolkien that he divides his characters into good guys and bad guys. Um, so, so the fact that we are debating it uh, is, in a way, testimony to a, a degree of moral complexity and kind of understanding of how difficult human life is in um, in Tolkien. I think I would say this, and this perhaps connects it to the point about tragedy. <clears throat> Taking Tolkien's um, vision as a whole, that the history of Arda, the, the, the kind of total. 
um, legendarium, some people call it, which I find an irritating word, but, but the whole kind of story from, from the creation of the world to, to the end. Um, it, that, that whole story can't be a tragedy because, um, uh, you know, it's part of Eru's design. It, the, the ultimate, um, our ultimate understanding of that has to be that it, a comedic understanding that it, um, that the will of God will prevail and, uh, that everything that has been brought into the world by Melkor that is harmful will ultimately conduce to the, the beauty of the world. Um, but so where does tragedy come in? Because the story of, um, Turin is a, ticks many boxes for, for tragedy. Um, the answer seems to be that the architect of tragedy in this world of the Silmarillion and, and the world of the children of Hurin is Melkor, you know, for, first through his corruption of Feanor, uh, and then his curse on Hurin and, and his family. So, um, the ultimate agent of the evil that arises in tragedy is uh, Melkor. Now, that doesn't mean that the individual people who make tragic errors and commit tragic crimes are, are somehow acquitted completely. But it does, you know, in terms of moral condemnation, it does take a lot of weight off their shoulders that so much is being driven by this, this great um, manipulator that is Melkor. Mm -hmm. So you get, I mean, you get the Turing plot gives you, it gives you, it's really Aristotelian. You get anagnoresis in a, a classical form, doesn't it? The, the sudden realization that um, uh, Niniel is his, his sister, sudden revelation of that. And even you get Peripatia if you think of the, the moment at which Turing has killed Glaurung as being a kind of the moment which exalts him to apparent glory. And then suddenly he's plunged into this um, state of despair. It's like kind of you catastrophe in reverse. So all that Tolkien seems to be doing his best to kind of replicate all the standard requirements for a tragedy. But, but the world as a whole isn't tragic. The, the, the tragedy here is ultimately attributable to the rebellion by Melkor, you know, all those eons previously. Mm. Mm. So I suppose that, that raises a question again about um, about the choices that Turin makes. And I, I mentioned before that many readers have this sort of visceral reaction, sort of, well, you know, I'd, I'd never have made that choice. I wouldn't no. have done this, I wouldn't have done that. And you've mentioned that, you know, Turin is, is sort of um, obviously imperfectly knowledgeable. He doesn't, he doesn't have complete knowledge of, of his surroundings and his um, and the choices of Morgoth or uh, Thingol or other characters. Um, so, do, yeah. do you think that? Well, I suppose it's a hard it's a hard question to to, to pass. But but does 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 the curse of Morgoth, I guess, um, have a larger part to play then than a lot of readers might assume? I suppose um, after reading the book, because because a lot of readers evidently do feel that, that Turin could have avoided his tragic demise had had he merely remained in Doriath under the protection of Melian, or you know done done something else, something different. 
Yeah. Um, yes. Um, yeah, I think it's clear that Turin has personality characteristics um, that are, I don't know what to, what to say, because I tend to start from the kind of uh, position that everything should be forgiven, really. But he has personality characteristics that are, to some extent, innate. You know, he inherits from his, his mother a, a certain kind of gentleness, but he also inherits from his father the disposition to be sudden and fierce. He's sudden and fierce, but he's also quick to pity. I think I said about the child Turin. So you, you can see both those characteristics coming out in um, his, his later development. Um, and he's, he's touchy, he's awkward, um, he's um, easily offended. You see that in his uh, kind of um, relationship with Beleg. But he keeps repenting. In fact, he does an awful lot of repenting. Um, uh, and to me, all that strikes me as kind of psych just psychologically realistic. He's a kind of, uh, you know, he's a mixture of, of good and bad. Um, and in the world, I will put it this way in terms of the responsibility of Morgoth, in the world that Morgoth has created and or is, is now dominating, it's pretty difficult for the the bad dispositions not to find an opportunity to express themselves. I suppose that would be the way I would um, kind yeah. of characterize it. Um, but if we're, if we're thinking about Tolkien's intention, I don't think Tolkien is intending that we regard Turin as, it might be more sinned against than sinning, but I don't think they were intended to regard Turin as somehow um, a saint who's been corrupted into a, a sinner. Um, mm -hmm. So and do you think that's what human beings are like? Um, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, and, and do you think that um, I, I'm thinking of Gandalf's words to Denethor in the Lord of the Rings regarding um, sort of the heathen kings and and, right. and, and suicide and, and sort of at least in my reading, um, really the, there's no judgment at the end of, of the book with regards to the suicide. It's just it's it, as you, as you already mentioned, it's sort of like Oedipus. Um, Feels almost like an out, you know, like a natural outcome of of the events, the preceding events. Yeah. Um, of course, in Lord of the Rings, we have this Gandalf is this sort of moral priestly figure who casts judgment on Denethor. Um, I yeah. find that perspective almost unimaginable in the Children of Hurin. It would it would simply it would it would feel quite alien to that atmosphere. But um, you know, I don't know if that or how you yeah yeah. I mean, the the fact that yeah, Turing commits suicide, which is, if you like, by at a certain level of judgment, a, a, a sin that only a heathen would commit. You know that that's kind of yes. what, essentially what Gandalf says: only the heathen kings, mainly the kings who haven't been vouchsafed the the kind of contact with the Eldar that the Numenorians have. Um, uh, I, I think two things. Two things soften the presentation of the suicide and, and make us very disinclined to, to make that kind of judgmental response. Um, one is that, you know, if you can't commit suicide in those circumstances, when can you commit suicide? It's a it is like Oedipus blinding himself in horror. Um, um, but, but the other is actually the, the, the fact that the suicide, in a curious kind of way, um, it is a kind of suicide because he wills it, 
but it's carried out by the sword, isn't it? I forget the actual what the sword actually says, but it's um, perhaps you can even find the yes phrase because it's very striking. Yeah, uh, will gleamy. Yeah, will you? He says to Gurthang the, the sword. Um, Will you take Turin to about, about will you slay me swiftly? And from the blade rang a cold voice in answer, Yes, I will drink your blood, that I may forget the blood of Beleg, my master, and the blood of Brandia slain unjustly. I will slay mm. you swiftly. Um, and of course, the two people he mentions, Beleg and Brandia, have been killed by, by Turin using the sword. Mm. Nevertheless, um, uh, the fact that there's a kind of the the sword has a kind of agency there makes you f feel a, a less intense awareness of Turin's own responsibility um, mm -hmm. for the action. It's, it's as if he's saying to the sword, "You kill me because that's that is appropriate as a kind mm -hmm. of punishment." Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I suppose. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Uh, of course, Neonil's suicide is perhaps a little more self-willed, as of course is ruins we hear about in the yes. world, just as, as perhaps counterexamples to to that. But yes. yes, you're right. There's a lot of yeah. But they suicide, do you think of Othello or whoever, is is a kind of pr a property of the, the tragic mode, isn't it? Um so um one doesn't well, can't read Tolkien's mind, but it would be reasonable for him to think that that aspect of human um, life and human culture that is expressed by tragedy should find a place in his work, and that that would allow that would make it appropriate I think, for him to, to to feel that he had maintained consistency with his Christian position if he allows these tragic things to happen, but to be explicable within the kind of overall design um, of the, the story of Arda. And perhaps I can just say say one more thing on that in, in this kind of general area, and then I probably shot my belt as far as um, this aspect is concerned. But there's um, something that really, that really struck me reading the children who are in again recently was the debate between Gwyndor and Turin um, in Nargothrond over how to respond to the, the threat from Morgoth. Gwyndor essentially suggests a kind of um, guerrilla tactics combined with staying as secret as possible. The essential thing is not to, to display yourself in open battle, but to kind of harry Morgoth's forces and Turin is all for going out and you know fighting, fighting a pitch battle and making a great kind of display of his um, military heroism <clears throat> and on the face of it that looks like just a kind of strategic difference between them and it's a pretty balanced kind of debate uh, actually and of course we know as readers we know Particularly if you've read through somewhere earlier, and we know that, that you know, nothing's going to be any use, and Morgoth is going to win in the end <laughs> um, until the whole thing is overturned by the, the Valar. But Turin does say a couple of things that suggest that it's not just something deeper here than just a debate over the 
the, the, the tactics of fighting against Morgoth. He says, for victory is victory, however small, nor is its worth only from what follows from it. Um, and that seems to say it's not, you know, you don't fight, you don't, you don't fight against evil only to achieve good consequences, but because it has worth in itself, doing that has a worth in itself to, to even a very transient victory over Morgoth's forces is of, of worth in itself in some kind of inherent way. You know, it's a bit like, I was thinking it's a bit like um, some football supporters think that even in a season where you get relegated, um, one good game, you know, that really sticks in your memory, it becomes part of the kind of, one great performance, it becomes part of the kind of history of your your club. Um, and he says, he then has a second remark, which seemed to push this idea further. He says, the defiance of Hurin is a great deed. And though Morgoth slay the doer, he cannot make the deed not to have been. So even even a deed which is followed by defeat, it's still there in the story, as it were. That's roughly the idea. Even the Lords of the West will honour it. And is it not written into the history of Arda, which neither Morgoth nor Manwe can unwrite? And that, that seems to imply that you know, if you go beyond Morgoth and Manwe, who do you come to? There's only God beyond that. So the, his, his idea seems to be that um, this heroic act becomes part of a kind of eternally unfolding story. Um, and it's a part that will, ev will please God and will evoke joy um, in, in, the, in the reader of, of the stories, you were. Do you see what I mean? This is yes, difficult yeah. to explain. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It's it's beautiful as part of the story, even if it doesn't lead to good consequences. Yes, yeah. It, it seems to me that uh, perhaps I'm wrong in this, but that perhaps it relates to the, the Tolkien or C.S. Lewis coined the phrase "the Northern theory of courage." This this sort of will to stand against. Mm -hmm regardless of the consequences. Perhaps perhaps it's an expression of that sort of worldview in a sense. Yeah, I think it, it, could, it, it, it is an expression of that, yeah, the, that somehow it, it's to, to go down to defeat heroically mm. Is, mm. is good. And I think Tolkien might have had some qualms about that and it, it, the way yeah. he deals with the Battle of Malden. Mm. You know, I'm going to be he's kind of slightly critical of that view. But there's an, another explanation, which is that... Um, if you go right back to the beginning of Silmarillion, to Ainu Lindale, um, when Erus, Erus says to Melkor, you know, all, all the harms that, I'm paraphrasing, but all the harms that you have devised, when you see the, the, the ultimate picture, you will see that they are but further enhancements of my design. Mm. Um, uh, he, uses, he says it more eloquently than that. That sounds like yes, management yeah. speak. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's... <laughs> And it goes with that, that stuff at the end of Andrew Lindley, where it talks about, or Eru talks about, the way in which the physical disasters that Melkor has imposed upon the earth, like, you know, fire and, and, and so forth, um, actually lead to beautiful things, um, to, to um, you know, the heat produces the clouds and the clouds rain and you get the beauty of the raindrop and all that kind of Stuff like mm. that kind of thought maybe in the background that you you, you the, in a in an eternal perspective 
these mm. terrible events a kind of beauty which is part of their worth and i'm not kind of just interesting i'm not I'm, i don't actually have any religious beliefs i'm not necessarily signing up to this view but i'm just trying to to mm. see how it is yes sure yeah that, that's not a, a parallel sort of in, in that particular sense that i thought about but that's interesting yeah well i think i think that's that's great uh, I mean, there's so much we could go into on Turin, but um, I don't want to take too much of your time up. So just as a, a final question, um, this is something I ask, you know, anyone I inter interview as a sort of general question, but how do you feel about the state of, I guess, Tolkien studies as a broad area now? Um, and I, you know, I don't know how sort of thoroughly or you sort of read the latest, the latest stuff, but, but um, you know, it seems to me there's obviously a period of, of change with the, all these new sort of adaptations, you know, on the horizon. And um, obviously there's been recent, I guess, controversy over some of right. that. Yeah. So an interesting few years ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, th I think that the world has changed for Tolkien and he's now getting... I won't say more attention than he deserves, but he's getting plenty of attention, in both in, in the kind of academic literature and, and culturally, generally. I think on the whole, that's a good thing, though a lot of it is not that good, but but um, <laughs> that probably applies to Shakespeare and Jane Austen and other, other people. Um, my, my, I don't know what you th you think. My, my feeling about the upcoming thing, is it com coming from Amazon or, or something, where they're going to dramatise the second age? Yeah, yeah. I can't feel very optimistic about that. And I think that's because the, I think the story there is there in the in Tolkien's work quite quite a gripping story, you know, the, the kind of seduction and deception of the um uh, the, the the elves by, by Sauron when he was um you know when he was better looking uh, <laughs> comes later. Um <laughs> that and, and more plausible, etc., and all, all the kinds. Of, but there's no. The problem is there's no dialogue really. It's all in the, in Tolkien's writing. It's all very at the level of chronicle almost. I mean, it's yes. it's, yeah. it's effective as a narrative, but to be dramatised, you need dialogue, and the dialogue in the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings was, I think, among its weakest aspects. That was good in some other ways. But at least sometimes it was able to draw on the model of Tolkien's own dialogue. And I, I don't know how they're going to manage that. I just, my heart sinks at <laughs> a lot of 21st century cliches kind of being put in the mouths of, into the mouths of, you know, the dwarf kings of Moria and uh, mm. all, all those people. But I, I might be wrong. I will, mm. One has to keep one's fingers crossed. Yes, no, absolutely. I mean, how, um, how, how do you feel? Yeah, I um, probably similarly. I mean, as you say, that there's not not a great deal of, of, of dialogue that's sort of close in narrative, apart from Eldarion and Arendis, but they're not not adapting that. So uh, you know, um, it'll, it'll be sort of the later period, as you talked about, um, the seduction of, of the elves, yeah. etc. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, these these big corporate projects, in my mind. Well, from my point of view, haven't haven't really been successful recently. So, I, um, creatively, at any rate. So, I'm not sure if you've read the Wheel of Time series, um, but uh, well, I I haven't read it either. But but um, the, the recent adaptation of that was, on the face of it, I thought pretty bad. So, which was also an Amazon production. Yeah, so, yeah. I don't know if that. <laughs> I mean, it's a different creative team, but um, 
still. Yeah, so... Yeah, what, what, go on, sorry. what one fears the worst? I mean, the, the in, in fairness, the Peter Jackson... I have fears about the Peter Jackson um, series that were not realised. The, the Hobbit wasn't anything like so good as The Lord of the Rings, I thought, but but it was better than I, I feared. Um, so one should always give these things a, a go. But, <laughs> well, it would be a, a very pleasant surprise if it turned out to be a success. For That's sure, yeah. And I hope it is. The, the, the little piece that we've seen of the, the design and, and things look fine, I suppose. Um, a lot of fans have had nitpicky comments, but, yeah, I'm not, not too worried about, about those. But, um, yeah, we, we can only wait and see. <laughs> Before I let you go, is there any, are there any plans to, to write anything else on Tolkien in the future or, or, or sort of focusing on the um, political philosophy and, and things like that? Um, I, no plans that are very formed. I've got so many other, other things other things on in uh, i mean your um uh, podcast uh, the prospect of that prompted me to um jot down some notes and which are partly informed what i've said today and i began to think again about this whole question of whether and in what way we can and if so in what way we, we can find a kind of consistent structure of ideas in talking so i, I can sort of imagine writing on that, but when I get around to that, I'm not sure. The, the other possibility would be to go back to my publishers and say, um, you know, after 20 years or whatever, how about a third edition of my Tolkien book with various other bits added to it? But, um, uh, how they'd respond to that, I don't, I don't know. I think quite a lot in my book is, you know, I'd still sign up to 95% of it, but um, has sort of outlived its usefulness because many things that I say there have been generally kind of accepted and lots of other people have said them and we're not having to fight a battle to get noticed in a way that 25 or 30 years ago we, we had to. Yeah. But but thanks for asking. And, uh, um, if I ever do, I'll give you an acknowledgement of this podcast because I'm sure oh. <laughs> preparing for it and having this discussion has been helpful. Yeah, well, thank you very much, and it was yeah, it was lovely to to chat after yeah several several years after first that that email exchange. All right, well, thank you very yeah. much, Brian, and I'll let you go now. But um, yeah, best of luck, of course, and if you do happen to write anything on on Tolkien in the future, I'll, I'll eagerly eagerly await that. Well, thank you. It's been it's been great to talk to you, and uh, good luck with your series of podcasts. They seem to be yes. uh, I'm impressed by them. So uh, may you have many more. <laughs> yes, that's, that's certainly no. All right. Thank you very much.